We are Triple ALC and we welcome everyone to our conversation. This will be a relaxed and open dialogue to give others a small window into how we feel and think. Um, today, as always, we have a special guest. Um, we have uh, Denise Algeyer with us. She's our ACI Medical Director. Um, most of you, if you guys are familiar with Ask an Expert, she's our resident expert when it comes to um, this, particularly this, this COVID thing. But I'm sure it expands beyond that. Denise, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Denise, why don't you tell us about yourself and, and how you even got to this journey in Albertsons and, and where we're headed with that? Oh, well, thank you. So it was uh, it was a chance encounter, I guess. Um, I was, um, uh, you know, last I it was the uh, December of of 2019 and our uh, leadership team, you know, we were already uh, hearing about COVID, uh, you know, in, in uh, China and other areas of the world and concerned about what this could mean for, for us. And so we actually, as a company, I think had got an early jump on, on COVID and, and our planning. So our executive team asked, um, you know, hey, do we have a pandemic plan that's you know, for uh, this type of, of event, and are we prepared? And so I was, I was tapped to put together our pandemic plan for the company, and then work really closely with um, leadership from all areas of the business to put together, you know, how we would address this from from an organization. And I've, you know, be, having a clinical background, I am a registered nurse. I uh, and board certified in occupational environmental health. Um, I'm an occupational health nurse specialist. So this was sort of, I guess, in my in my bailiwick. I also spent um, 13 years in the military and and did uh, mass casualty uh, uh, preparedness and and, um, and so I, that that sort of I guess prepared me somewhat for this. But I think re in reality, no one was truly prepared for what. COVID brought to us in early um, 2020 and, and obviously what we're dealing with now, but that's how I got involved is, um, you know, I'm a member of our risk management team and I've been with the company f since 2014. Nice. So what branch of the military are you from? And thank you for serving as we thank also you. have our own, we have our own military uh, uh, representative, <laughs> Sharon Hall. So thank you too, Sharon. I probably told you that before. Where, what branch are you, did you serve with? The Navy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There we <laughs> go. Know, That's well, why you well, guys two Sharon in the probably, pod. Sharon will probably appreciate this. Then I was cross assigned to the Fourth Recon of the Marines, and you know that I got teased. So you go, oh, you're going over to the to the green side. But um, the uh, I also was uh, assigned to the Joint Forces Task Force uh, Defense Threat Reduction Agency. So we that was where we prepared for you know, mass casualty events and, and um, you know, it was a joint forces um, uh, task force that worked together across all areas of the military. Nice. That's very awesome. interesting. That's, that, we appreciate that for sure. Um, so I, I guess the main focus is kind of talking about uh, COVID and how it relates to uh, us as individuals and, and us as a company. Um, how does ask an expert, how is that supposed to help us? And, and what, what kind of questions are you getting out of that? How's that been going for you? 
Uh, it's it's going really well, and 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 the idea was, you know, we were we were um, talking, you know, as an as an organization, how can we reach our associates? How can we better reach people? What are different ways that we can, um, you know, answer questions people might have and reach people at a different level? And that's how the idea um, came about. And we get a lot of questions. I mean, just. You know, we've had published the first two episodes and initially um, questions were around, you know, can I get COVID from the vaccine? Do I still need, do I still need, um, you know, the vaccine if I've already had COVID? Um, uh, there were questions around FDA authorization as well as um, the uh, booster or third dose uh, recommendations and um, you know, if someone meets a particular criteria and um, uh, questions around natural immunity, herd immunity and natural immunity. Um, and, uh, it, you know, a, a lot of questions about the vaccines, you know, and about whether or not someone should get vaccinated or if it's needed and then, um, you know, response or whether or not they're concerned, you know, employees that are concerned about uh, potential side effects. Go ahead, Bree. Uh, Denise, thank you for you know doing this for us and being on the podcast. Uh, question for you about the um, how long have we known about COVID? Just kind of the little bit of the research that I've been doing. COVID or coronavirus is not a new thing. It's been around for a while, so. For the for those that uh, talk about the vaccine was rushed, how long has the the research that they've been doing on coronavirus and COVID nineteen specifically been going on behind the scenes? If you could talk about that, that's a that's a great question. Um, so two, I'm going to answer that in two separate um, points. So coronaviruses, you're correct. There are, are multiple coronaviruses. Actually, the common cold is a coronavirus, um, but you likely remember SARS and, and uh, uh, MARS, those two uh, uh, respiratory viruses that were talked about, affected a lot of um, Middle Eastern, Asian countries, had some effect in the U.S., but really minimal. Um, there are um, other coronaviruses, as I said, the common cold. What is different about COVID-19 and how long have we known about COVID-19? I mean, it was first discovered and, and talked about uh, by the World Health Organization in uh, November, December of 2019. Um, there's, uh, you, you may have seen or heard that there's still controversy around how and where the virus uh, originated, the COVID-19 virus originated. Um, I, you know, I don't feel that's important to get into that, but um, that hasn't really been, um, uh, you know, that, that hasn't been determined yet. However, the uh, vaccine, the mRNA vaccine technology that's been used for two of the vaccines that are authorized in the U.S., uh, Moderna and Pfizer, um, use the mRNA technology, which a lot of people are concerned that that's been rushed, that it was, you know, rushed through the FDA approval process just so that we could get a vaccine out there, which is not correct. Actually, the mRNA technology has been studied and researched for well over a decade. 
And so the, it's not a new technology. It's just this type of virus that we have, in this country, it's been a long time since we've had a pandemic that has affected um, United States as well as the rest of the world at this level. So this was a, a, uh, a great opportunity to leverage that technology to produce a vaccine. Typically, um, the vaccines that we're most familiar with, like measles and the flu, are made from a, um, uh, yeah. a part, yeah, they're like the, the um, active virus. They're made from part of the virus that, um, to create the, um, the vaccine. So that takes years to develop. So we certainly, if, if you imagine where we were even just in the middle of, of uh, 2021 and, and last November, December, January, imagine what that would look like if we had to wait for years to develop a vaccine through that methodology. Yeah. Exactly. And, and the previous administration did a great job of, of rushing, uh, not rushing or forcing, but to put pressure on our uh, our science science departments, our, our <laughs> pharmaceutical companies to actually get this out. So I, I think credit needs to go where credit is due. Um, I know Jerrica had her hand hand up first, and then we'll hit the other ones. So Denise, you, you talk about, uh, hi, yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah. <laughs> it's like razzle. <laughs> so I, you talk about the, the vaccines that we all know of, of measles, the whooping cough vaccines you get when you're younger. I've had probably many conversations with people discussing the concept of vaccines and the fact that you still, vaccines aren't a cure, right? And I think they determine the fact that if you get the vaccine, sometimes you're automatically, you don't have the, you won't get the virus. And can you discuss how you would talk about that with your, with our team, our employee bases, or just people in general, because I think they misunderstand the concept of vaccines. And I think we've turned that into, get it, it's a cure, it's a protection in some sense, so. Yeah, you're you're right. A vaccine is not a cure. It's a protection. And some vaccines, like if you think about the flu vaccine, because we we know the flu changes um, every year, mutates. So that's why a new flu vaccine is um, produced every year. Um, whereas measles, mumps, rubella, those those vaccines, we get those when we're children. Uh, we now realize sometimes, um, you know, we we may need a booster of some of those vaccines as adults. Um, but the, the, um, none of those vaccines are, are cures. Um, the difference between a respiratory virus though, and say measles, um, polio is that you're, you know, there it's, it's a different type of virus in the way that affects the body and the mutation. So the, it, it's not new and it is expected that viruses will mutate. But the longer a virus circulates um, broadly uh, uh, throughout a community, um, the more opportunity it has to mutate and change and then create, um, you know, stronger variants like we saw with the Delta variant. Did I answer your question? No, that's, that was very helpful because I, I've had probably many conversations about this and I'm like, oh okay <laughs> it's it's kind of disappointing to me at times um and i i use the example of chicken pox like i in my 30s i had chicken pox i didn't realize you had a vaccine for chicken pox so the kids no longer know how contagious chicken pox were 
from the 80s and 90s. So it's it's for me, I'm like, do you remember going to get chicken pox? You scratched everywhere and you got scars from it as a kid. And these kids don't have any idea what they are. So it's it's part of me like saying like, let's go back to common sense here <laughs> at times. So. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> at what point can we consider the vaccine uh, no longer experimental? Because that seems to be one of the uh, larger hurdles uh, for people who are showing hesitancy. Well, the word experimental from a clinical standpoint is is a, you know, is a different, that's a different view than what are, I mean, all of the vaccines that are used in the U.S. are approved under the emer- either the emergency use authorization or now Pfizer community being fully uh, approved. But I think it's important for people to understand what has to happen for a vaccine to even make the uh, emergency use um, authorization. First, all um, all uh, medications have to go through phase one, two, and three clinical trials um, before any of the um, um, vaccine manufacturers ha- could submit their um, drug for approval for emergency use, they had to have at least two months of clinical data post phase three clinical trials. So keep in mind those all drugs go, whether they're fully FDA approved or this emergency use authorization have phase one, two, and three clinical trials to be fully uh, FDA approved, which uh, Pfizer now is, um, you you have to have at least six months of clinical um, data. Uh, post phase three clinical trials. So I would not say any of these drugs are experimental. Well, that's good to know because I don't want to be an experiment. I didn't sign up to be an experiment. So that's good to know. (laughs) But I do have another question, Denise, and um, it's still not clear to me if you've been vaccinated, how you can still get COVID if the vaccination is a protection from that, how, and, and I think I've heard the term of breakthrough, and I don't know how all of this comes together as it relates to a, a person who's vaccinated. Sure. Well, it's, uh, and I, I hate to keep comparing the flu and, the, and COVID. It seems to be the best comparison here. They're different viruses, but so when you get a, when you get a, a, a flu vaccine, you know, you are protected from the flu. You could still get the flu. But you are protected, and if you do get it, you're less likely to get severely ill. Um, by the way, the the uh, effectiveness of a flu vaccine is much lower than what we're seeing in, in COVID vaccines, but and that's been the case for years. But most people don't know that because they don't ask those level of questions about flu. It is important for people to get a flu vaccine because we know the flu kills, um, you know, uh, a lot of people every year. In, uh, with regard to a COVID vaccine, if you're fully vaccinated, you've had two doses, if it's a two-dose series or the Janssen one-dose series, you're less likely to get COVID if you're around someone that has it, but it's still possible that you could get sick. If you do get sick, usually your mild, your, you know, your symptoms are going to be very mild. And previously, you know, before the Delta variant, people that were fully vaccinated that got ill, their viral load was very low. So they weren't really able to spread it to other uh, people. With the Delta variant, the number of spike proteins um, 
allows the virus to one and you know spread faster and um you know it, the the uh that's why it's so much more contagious is because um of the the number of spike proteins which increases the viral load which would allow you to spread it faster so the people that we saw that the the research in the MMWR research that is um, you know been published on the CDC website um, shows that people that got you know that are hospitalized that are fully vaccinated are typically people that are immunocompromised. So there's someone who's had maybe a, 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 a transplant or they're on high dose steroids for um, a condition that, that requires, that, that puts their immune system in compromise. So the data still shows that if you are vaccinated, you're much less likely to get sick. And if you do get sick, it's less severe. Got it. Thank you. That kind of brings me to a, another, I guess, side topic is how come we don't focus on people that are immunocompromised or not healthy, right, or out of shape or overweight. It seems like those are the highest uh, by percentage death rates that we have and and focusing on on trying to stay healthy and maintaining our our health. I think that's a huge key that's, that's not really being promoted. Is there something we can do around that? I agree 100%. Um, you know, if, if someone's obese, they are at a much higher, um, you know, they're much more likely to have a severe outcome with COVID if they get sick. Um, also, those with hypertension or other heart disease are much more likely to develop the blood clots, small. We know with COVID, you can develop small and, and large vessel clots. Uh, much more likely to have those complications if you have those diseases. So um, taking this from a multi-prong approach, you know, how can we be healthy? How can we support employees making, um, you know, uh, good choices, uh, helping provide either tools or, or um, you know, information that helps support their health and well-being? I, you know, I believe that our role my role as a clinician is to empower people to make the right healthcare decisions for them. You know, to empower them with information, with with um, uh, you know, answering questions, so that they can make the right decisions for their own personal health. I mean, when it comes down to wellness and and you know, taking care of ourselves, that's obviously in, in many cases a personal health choice. But some people have genital disorders that put them, you know, at higher risk that they can't necessarily control through exercise and diet. I mean, that certainly helps uh, keep them healthy in other ways, but it doesn't necessarily prevent those uh, diseases or conditions. Like, I think a good example is I have asthma, so that's yeah. necessarily, it doesn't matter how well I keep myself in shape. As soon as I get COVID or anything similar, I, I have an opportunity to where it can uh, spread uh, horribly. So, okay. yeah, Remar, you got a question? I have two questions. Um, so, Denise, you said something earlier that made me think about this. Do respiratory viruses mutate faster than other type of viruses? Is that why, um, like the flu, is that why every year the vaccine changes for that because they mutate so fast or am i misunderstanding no so viruses can mutate faster if 
if there one is not a vaccine available and you you've all probably heard the term herd immunity well herd immunity occurs when enough people have uh, gotten the virus that there is natural immunity uh, or vaccine or vaccination but the, the challenge we have uh, particularly in this country is we we are very divided on vaccination and and where how many people are vaccinated so we don't have enough people to um, stop the the um, you know the multiple variants there's a different there's a more opportunity for variants with less people being vaccinated. So I wouldn't say that respiratory viruses mutate faster, but if we think about how that respiratory viruses spread, I mean, measles, um, you know, is highly contagious, but we have a very effective vaccine. So it's unusual for us to see outbreaks of measles in the United States. It does happen, but it's unusual. But the flu, you know, we know that people get the flu every year and if they get the flu vaccine they're much less likely to get it um, and in order to prevent that they need to continue to get the uh, flu vaccine so I would um, I would say I wouldn't necessarily say that they, they mutate faster but this particular virus we are not uh, if we were waiting for herd immunity a lot of people would die unnecessarily um, from from COVID and there's not you know we by the time we had enough people that got sick, you know, a lot more people would die and it would be, um, you know, a terrible thing for, for people. So. I kind of feel like we're already there, though. <laughs> a lot of people have died unnecessarily. Yes. Remar, go ahead and finish your second question. So my second question is to bring it black, back to the black community. We've all heard of the Tuskegee experiment and <clears throat> a lot of people who are against the vaccine like to use the Tuskegee experiment as their reasoning for not getting the vaccine because um, are you familiar with that Denise? Uh, so I, I feel bad that I don't know that okay. so tell me. Uh, okay. So in 19, 9, 1932 there was an experiment in Tuskegee Alabama where they took a group of African-American men that had uh, syphilis. 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 I, I am familiar with that. I am familiar with that, actually. And we were uh, putting together our different, um, you know, outreach opportunities with, um, you know, the trusted voice, mm -hmm. thinking about different populations that really mistrust what the government or, you know, others might say about a particular treatment. Yeah. Um, you know, that's obviously one of the reasons why the African-American uh, population may not trust what the government is saying, similar issue with the Hispanic population. There were um, um, experiments done in Mexico where people were told they got a, a vaccine and they didn't and many people died. And so there's just this mistrust of, of the government or, or governmental officials about healthcare decisions. That's why you know we've tried to develop different ways that we can reach people through trusted voices. And, um, you know, uh, the data has shown um, that most people trust their health care provider, uh, their personal health care provider, um, you know, over 95% of people significantly trust their health care provider or uh, family and friends. You know, they, they lean on their communities for 
um, decisions like this. That's why reaching out to individual communities and um, uh, other groups is a great way to, you know, um, provide the right information um, and answer specific questions people might have. And the HHS actually the um, has some phenomenal videos um, targeted towards the African American community that I could share with you if you'd be interested. That has you know. Um, physicians, nurses, other practitioners that have worked within their communities to build that trust and answer questions. Oh, absolutely. If you can provide that, we'd, we'd love to post that on our SharePoint. Uh, yeah, so we can send that out to the teams. Absolutely. And and that's another piece that you, you mentioned is trust in the community and going to their physicians. And, and one thing, it depends on the region that you live in, and we kind of mentioned this on the, on the previous call, is a lot of uh, African-Americans or people in the black community don't necessarily have uh, anyone that as a physician that that they trust because they're not of the same uh, ethnicity in some some respects. So that might be a piece of it, too. I, I know we like to point back to the Tuskegee experiment, but I feel like we don't necessarily have the large group of physicians that we can go to that we feel like we trust. We we go to the ones that are available to us, right? So there, there may be that kind of, there may be a gap there. So in order to, to recreate well, I, that trust or earn that trust, that that's something we may have to revisit. That's what I like about the work that uh, the Department of Health and Human Resources has done with the Trusted Voice campaign is there are, um, you know, various clinicians, and not all physicians, some are nurses, um, you know, pharmacists, uh, from the black community that are providing the education directly to their community members and they've recorded these uh, you know the uh, little short videos that you could use and share um, on your on the SharePoint I think might be very helpful you can you can go to our SharePoint and you'll see if some of those videos are on there actually we actually awesome. have a couple of them yeah awesome. we definitely definitely try to reach out to our community any questions out there from from anybody? Um, I'm just going through the the questions that we have already. I know that Denise has about 14 minutes left before we have to let her go. So, um, let's see. Denise, what about um, I have a, a six year old granddaughter, and I know that the now they're saying that they're looking at testing for um, those individuals that are that what is that? five to 12 or five to 11 that they are doing that testing. And um, some parents have hesitations with getting kids uh, vaccinated so young. And so that's something that I'm really trying to get myself educated on because my granddaughter is in school and all of the adults are vaccinated. She's not, but I want to make sure that she's protected. And so, but I do have some hesitations because of the young age. Can you share any insight about that particular vaccine, even though they say it's a, a third of the dose or something? It's a, it, it is a so I am on the calls with um, the CDC and the uh, vaccine strategy task force and the um, we've done these things. I, I, I would wait until the full clinical protocols are out, uh, but the the, the dose is a, a much smaller dose. I know the American Academy of Pediatrics 
has been pushing for this um, because we know that children within that age group um, are, are at a greater risk for seeing more children get severely ill with COVID. And of course, the more variants we have, the more likelihood that we're going to see um, children uh, get really ill with COVID. I mean, right now, I mean, like last year cases with children, most uh, children have mild symptoms. But with the Delta variant, we certainly saw a change in that. And then who knows, you know, future variants, how that might affect children. So, Denise, you know, I think we're all aware that the holiday season is upon us. And again, we had a tough, tough season last year with like not being with your families and not seeing people, your loved ones. Is there any some precautions um, that you would take this time around, um, especially going into the holiday season, Thanksgiving and Christmas um, and what we can do to protect ourselves in the process? Sure. Well, um, you know, the CDC guidelines tell us, you know, and I don't want to be so scripted that I just quote the CDC guidelines, but I'll, I'll reference that first. It is safe if you're if you're fully vaccinated. So let's say you and your family members are fully vaccinated. You want to gather for Thanksgiving, Christmas or, or to celebrate other holidays uh, in a small group, you know, within your family setting that is considered relatively safe for people who are vaccinated. Um, if you're in a public area and you're you know that's why the mask um, recommendations for people who are fully vaccinated if you're out in the public and around people that you're not normally around that's when you need to wear a mask if you are concerned let's say uh, uh, regarding uh, family members that may be participating in these events that are at higher risk and even if you've been vaccinated you could, um, you know, before the before your you know get back gathering, uh, ask people to get tested. Well, we did that in my family because um, we have a couple of members of the family that are uh, very high risk, uh, heart disease and and immunocompromised. Um, one of my family members is immunocompromised, so we all did that just to prepare before getting together. But um, you know, minus that, if everyone is vaccinated and you were. Um, you know, you haven't had any known exposure and you're everyone's feeling well. I, I you know, the CDC guidelines say that it's it's uh, safe for you to gather. Um, in terms of travel, I, you know, when you're traveling, if you're getting on an airplane and you're traveling to other places, I think there was a question in the chat about how do I know where I should travel? Well, there is the uh, CDC data tracker that you may already have that, but I can send you the link. You can look at that at any time and look by zip code or other country if you're wanting to travel internationally to see what um, the uh, community spread is in that particular area so that you can plan before you travel. Um, you want to wear, if you're going to be on a plane um, or in, in, um, in an airport, you want to wear a very well-fitted mask to make sure you're protecting yourself and others around you. Remark, go ahead. Yeah, so Denise, what would you say the new normal is now? Because COVID has totally changed everything. And a lot of people are saying like, you know, can't wait to go back to how it was before, go back to normal. And I don't think it, we're ever going to go back to normal. There's going to be a new normal. What do you think that is for us after or coming out of COVID? 
I think we're all, uh, you know, it's been, um, it's, it's, it's affected people uh, from a mental health standpoint, um, as well as, as just, you know, the, the, the social isolation and uh, being around other people. Uh, gosh, if I had a, a, a crystal ball to say what the new normal is, I'd probably be on some, you know, famous talk show, right? I, I don't know. I don't know what the new normal is, to be honest with you. But I, I my belief is that um, people will be more cautious. Um, and if 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 we're looking for the silver lining here, it it has really underscored the value of family and people and friendships. And um, we've all got really creative in how we connect with each other. Um, and you know, uh, do you know, realizing uh, how important that is, but it's also caused a lot of mental health and stress um, within our country and, and other countries as well. That I, I don't think that's going away once uh, you know if we flip the switch, if you will, and go back to normal. <laughs> so, well, Denise, I know your time is short. We're going to let Sharon have the last question, and then we'll close out from there. Okay, thank you, E.T. Denise, what about eating in the restaurant? So one of the things that's always confused me is how is it you can go into the restaurant with a mask, remove your mask to eat, but you have to put the mask back on. How, what's, what is the risk between walking in, taking it off, eating, putting it back on when you're not eating? I, that's always confused me. So I'm going to try not to chuckle here. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a, if I'm going to be totally honest with you, it's a lot of compliance, right? So restaurants have to comply with state mandates. And I, I think, you know, state officials want to allow businesses to be open, but they have to make sure we're going to the degree possible to protect the public, right? So by saying, okay, if I'm up and walking around where I might be around more people, and as I'm walking by, I'm spreading my, uh, you know, germs more freely than if I'm sitting just at my table. Um, but you're right, there's no magic in, you know, walking in with a mask and taking off when I'm at my table. But um, the idea is to prevent you know, spread to the degree possible in, in that type of environment. Um, again, thinking of masks as source control, not as PPE. Got it. And, and I, I also see that as respecting the employees, right? They yeah. have to be in that environment the entire time. They don't leave. And and if we can contain as much as we can, any of our, uh, any anything that we can transmit, to someone else, I, I think that's just showing a sign of respect, right? And saying, hey, I respect your place of business. I, I respect this is your job. I, I don't know what your family life is like. You may have immunocompromised children or parents. So I'm here for you. Thank you for serving me. That's that's how I look at it. I feel the same way as you share. And I'm like, so I'm about to, I just ate lunch today. I'm sitting with, with the group of people and we don't have our mask on, but the server does, right? And then when I get up to go to the bathroom, I put my mask on. But I, I, I absolutely get what you're saying. It makes sense to me. So, well, Denise, I appreciate you spending time with us and really opening up to some of these questions that we had. Um, 
Yeah, you're getting a round of applause. This is silent applause, right? <laughs> people on the, the people who are listening can't see our applause going. There you go. That's Thank it. You. So we we really do appreciate that. And and anybody can go on to our SharePoint link and we'll have your um, ask. Um, what is it? What's it called again? Ask, ask uh, an expert. Ask an expert because that's who you are. We'll, we'll we'll be asking you some questions and listening into some of the answers that you provided. I, I hope today was a a, a small uh, peek into what what you kind of go through in some of the questions, and you're probably a lot more detailed on those. So um, thank you, thank, thank you, you, Denise, for joining us, and thank you everybody for joining. Jessica, Suzanne, Michael, Remar, Adam, and Sharon. Thank you guys for for joining us today. If anybody wants to get in contact with us, you can reach us at AAALC at albertsons.com and we'll answer any uh, questions you have or comments. We'll try to get back to you as soon as we possibly can. And be feel free to join our ARG. If uh, it doesn't matter what race you are, come on in. We, we, we got you. We, we take all comers. Uh, so we appreciate you. Again, go to our SharePoint. A lot of these things that Denise mentioned today a lot of those things are already there um, so great questions everybody i appreciate you <laughs>